We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, I'm joined by Russ Roberts. He's the president of Shalom College in Jerusalem. He's also a fellow, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution and out now with a new book. It's called Wild problems, and I can't wait to hear about it. Russ is also the host, of course, of Econ Talk, and you can find out more. You can listen to his work. You can look at his work over at russroberts.info. Russ, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Emily. Tell us about wild problems. It's such an interesting premise, and I just would love to hear you kind of give the basic description before we dive even deeper into everything you talk about. Well, problems are um, the problems that are very difficult to attack rationally and analytically in the way that we're used to making decisions. So these are decisions like whether to get married, who to marry, whether to have children, how many, whether to move, what career to pursue. All these kind of choices that we have in our lives, uh, we have some information about them. Some of it's often wrong, but we have some idea of what we're getting into when we say get married. But it turns out until you get married, you really don't have a very good idea of what it's about. Until you have children, you don't really know what it's like to be a parent. And so the normal ways that we make decisions using data or algorithms or an app or recommendations or reviews, those are not really available to us. And I think in the modern era, where a lot of these decisions are now real decisions as opposed to, oh, of course, everyone's going to get married. Everyone's going to have children if they can. Those are now choices for people, and I think a lot of folks feel at sea. They feel a little bit lost. They feel a little bit of anxiety over how to think about these issues, and they're, they're thirsty for data or information, evidence that would help them make the right decision or even better, the best decision. And my, the theme, one of the themes of the book is that that is not available to us. Uh, the best decision is an illusion anyway, and we need different ways to think about these challenges than we than we do when we think about, say, what movie to watch Saturday night. We can go to IMDb or we can go to Amazon and see reviews and how many stars it gets and we can see what other people like. And there's an algorithm that makes recommendations. Uh, a lot of important parts of life, those aren't available and it's um, hard to make that adjustment. And I'm also curious as to what in the culture, um, you, you mentioned that people are, are seem to be hungry for these algorithmic or data-based answers to difficult problems. Was there something you noticed uh, just with people that you were encountering or in the popular culture that made you think, wow, people really are starting to turn increasingly uh, to data? It's not that people have ever done this. Of course, you talk about haven't ever done this. You talk about uh, older examples from Darwin to Ben Franklin. Um, but was there something now that just made you think, you know, this this should be addressed because people are looking in the wrong places and, uh, you know, nobody's telling them there's a better way to look at it. Well, two things happened to me as I was thinking about the ideas in this book that caused me, pushed me to write it. The first I talk about, I think on the first page of the book, I had a friend of mine who was trying to decide whether to have, he and his wife were trying to decide whether to have a child. And he knew I had four kids. And he said, you know, we're, we made a list of the pros, the positives, and we made a list of the cons, the negatives. And it's still pretty, you know, hard to see where the best choice is. And, you know, at the time, I kind of wasn't sure what to say to him, um, other than it's not that kind of decision, not that helpful, right? But that was my first thought. And then 
uh, some months or maybe in a year or two after that, uh, Julia Gallif, who I've uh, had on my podcast talking about her book, The Scout Mindset. It's a lovely book. But Julia would describe herself as part of the rationalist community, people who pride themselves on using data and evidence and thinking carefully and in uh, making decisions. And she had written on Twitter, um, wouldn't it be great if, if we took 5,000 people who were thinking of having kids, asked them how happy they were, and then followed them for 20 years after they had kids and asked them how happy they were afterwards and see what they said. And that way we could find out, the implication was we could find out whether it's a good idea to have kids. And I, I was kind of uh, fascinated by that, taken aback. I disagreed with her. I wrote, we had a great conversation back and forth on Twitter about it. And then uh, a little bit of a mini debate at Paragraph, the website on discussion. And I, I just realized that for a lot of people, that's the default. Uh, where's the data set? Where's the evidence? And for a lot of problems, that's a good idea. Uh, many, many important social and policy issues, the data are often inconclusive, but you learn something. And I would argue in these kind of problems at the personal level, whether to marry, have kids, which career to choose, data, if anything, misleading. They are, uh, they're, I say in the book, they're akin to the person coming home from the party, can't find their keys, they're looking under the street light, and a person comes along to help them, they look for a while and they can't find them, and then finally the person helping says, are you sure you lost them here? And the person says, no, but the light's better under the street light. So I think we're very prone to looking under the street light, and one of the themes of the book is that most of the important parts of the decision are in the shadows. It's good to try to get comfortable living there. Hmm. And I want to keep on this example of children because it's such an interesting one. And the way you talk about it is really interesting. Um, from a rationalist perspective, I think they feel very comfortable about data in their direction um, on this question in, in terms of you know children making people at least temporarily uh, less happy. You can see that in studies, but there is obviously it's 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 not measuring S surveys like that aren't measuring exactly what um, is is actually happening with people and the value the real value in in question. Um, what can that particular example tell us about the limits then? of trying to use data to, you know, make these these major decisions or even to understand the world around us, the way that we relate uh, to some of these important questions and important events in a person's life. Well, I, argue, I argue that and deeply believe that having children changes you, uh, which raises the question of which person should you be listening to when you're thinking of having a child, the person who doesn't have one? the person who later will have one. And the strange part about this, there are a lot of decisions in life. You have a pretty good idea what you're getting into. You need to try a new flavor of ice cream. You've had ice cream before. You know, having ice cream, say, rosemary flavored or, um, you know, some other uh, strange flavor, you, you might not know exactly what it's going to taste like, but you have some idea. And I think on the outside, when we look at parents as people before we have children, when we look at parents, we think, we see a certain part of the parenting experience. Uh, it could be a very positive one. It often is negative. We see the hassle and the constraints that children provide. And so we're kind of uncertain, you know, is this going to be fun? And the answer is sometimes, uh, often not. You don't have children for the fun of it. Uh, there are fun parts of being a parent, for sure. Uh, but I suggest in the book, it's very possible that as a parent, I have had more bad days than good days. 
And if I used majority rule, I would say, well, then it's a mistake to have children. But I don't think that's the way you should think about it. And I don't think it's the way most people have thought about it through through life, although I present defense of people who argue that way in the book. It's certainly a legitimate position. I just don't agree with it. And I try to explain why. But part of the reason I don't think it's the right way to think about it is that it's not the only reason we do things in life uh, for fun or for what I call narrow utilitarianism, the the excess of pleasure over pain of various things that we choose in life. Uh, children bring meaning. They bring purpose. They change how we see ourselves. Um, for some people, parenthood is something to aspire to. And for other people, it's not. That's okay, too. But I think the simple point is that it's more than just a question of, am I going to enjoy this or am I going to not enjoy it? And I think mm. uh, yeah, if you ask most parents, if you ask them, are you glad you had children? Most will say yes. Many will say no, by the way, it's, if you look at the survey data. But the other part I want to emphasize is that the the experience of being a spouse, say a, a husband or wife, the experience of being a father or mother, the experience of being a certain kind of uh, having a certain career, being an economist, being a lawyer, being a dentist, being an orthopedic surgeon, uh, those things become part of our identity. They suffuse all of our days. They suffuse all the things that we experience in life. I remember the first time I went to a movie with my daughter when she was an infant. My wife uh, really went to the movie more with my daughter than I did because she nursed her in the dark until she fell asleep and we enjoyed the movie. But I was struck by how the experience of a movie with a child in your life, not the fact that she was sitting next to me, but the fact that I had become a parent was different. I saw the world differently. Um, there are things that make me cry that I would not notice as uh, if I hadn't had a, a child. And there are things that I cry over, my wife cries over, and when our children uh, see us, they can't understand what's wrong. Uh, I remember saying, I can't think it was Toy Story 3, the one where... Um, <laughs> That's a tearjerker. It's a tearjerker. Kids going off to... What's his name? What's the, what's, who's, who's the kid? Andy. Andy. Andy's going off to college. And the question is, is he going to take his kid, his toys with him or not? So we go see that movie. It's a great tearjerker. It's pretty entertaining. It's a good movie. When it's over, uh, my wife's sobbing in the bathroom like a baby. <laughs> and I'm <laughs> choked up and I can't really talk so well because our kids at that point are maybe, you know, I don't know, 12 or 13 or 10 or 8, whatever they were. And uh, I remember one of our kids turned to, to my wife and saying, what's wrong? Like, why, why are you crying? Like, literally can't imagine, obviously, because they don't know. They can't look ahead to going to college. And when they do, by the way, they look at it as mainly, this is going to be great. After your first kid goes to college, you think back, wow, when I went off to college, I didn't think about my parents for a second. I was off to have a <laughs> great time and a great experience. And I think they were probably having a hard time after I left. And of course, I've talked to them since then, and they they did. Um, but anyway, the point is you change when you make these decisions. You enter a different state, the state of being a parent, state of being an economist, the state of being a person who lives in, in a particular place rather than where you used to live. And um, it's really hard to think about those decisions using data. You can ask people who have been there. You can talk to people about what they experience. The effects of these kinds of decisions, though, are, I, mean, I just gave you an attempt to give you a flavor. I think you probably have some idea of what I'm talking about when you talk about a movie that 
you know, yanks on your heartstrings. But mm-hmm. most people don't like to talk about those things. And if they do, they don't describe it very well. So for the person who's making the leap into one of these states, they're really not sure what they're getting into. So it requires what I call a leap of faith. You know, you have to make a jump without full information. There has to, there's some kind of, of trusting going on that it'll turn out okay. So the other thing I try to talk about is that it's okay to make a mistake <laughs> because you don't know. It's totally normal. And instead, we were, we have so much anxiety and stress and pressure. Oh, my gosh, am, am I doing the right thing here? And a lot of times we'll procrastinate because we don't have that information that we need to make the decision. We really want to know, what's it going to feel like after I've done it? Am I going to be glad I did it? And the answer is, nah, I wish I could tell you, but, but I can't. I can maybe tell you for me, but you're not me. So... Cancel culture is coming to your bank and holding the wrong political views might soon leave you out in the cold. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest episode of The Bill Walton Show, Todd Zwicky, Paul Watkins, and I discuss what is already happening, how the Biden administration is already pursuing this agenda, and what we can do about it. This progressive culture offensive is relentless. It's coming for you, and you won't hear about this anywhere else. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's so interesting to me is that Gen Z is statistically pretty risk averse and they've been sort of conditioned in this hyper digital world. And I do wonder whether there's a connection between risk aversion and our, you know, rapidly advancing technology, because when you start relying on algorithms to literally finish your sentences in Gmail <laughs> um, and the computers are, are starting to use AI to make so many choices for us. Um, I, I wonder if that's pushing us in a really sort of, I mean, I know that's pushing us in a scary direction, but even just in terms of um, our ability to, to make decisions uh, based on things that aren't just uh, algorithms that aren't just programmed based on data, uh, that seems to be going to a very dark place quickly. Yeah, I think it's really hard. I mean, I, I, I'm not Gen Z, but it's hard for me at times too. You know, we're used to, earlier I mentioned recommendations. That's an obvious example, but navigation is a, is a better metaphor, right? Um, I don't get out a map ever and try to think about where I'm going to go or how I'm going to get there or what are the different routes. I just rely on Waze or Google Maps and I'm done. And it's incredibly pleasant incredibly liberating. So, you know, if somebody said to me, oh, your phone's out of batteries, here's a map, good luck. Well, at least I'm old enough to remember what a map looks like and and I've used one before, but it's very daunting. And a lot of the choice and anxiety of choice has been taken away, which is fantastic. I just want to emphasize, you know, what restaurant to go to, what book to read next. Um, There are fabulous ways that technology and and uh, the big data help us make lots of decisions like that. So we want it to work everywhere uh, and it doesn't. And so I think the other part of it, of course, is that uh, until about probably 50 years ago, everybody had would get married who could and everybody would have children who could. And now, hey, all of a sudden it's not a social norm anymore. It's a choice and it's you're not pressured the way you were in the past to do those things. And well, that's weird. No, I guess I have to think about it. And 
we don't equip people to think about it. Uh, we don't help them typically make those decisions. In fact, we tell them nothing because we don't want to be part of any mistake they might make. Right. You know, in general, you don't tell people, oh, you should bury him. Oh, yeah. Kids are great. Help yourself. You know, the problem is, is that for most people, uh, they're not sure what to do and they now have to make a choice. So it's very different. You also talk about the, and I think this is in the same vein, you talk about the obsession with productivity. Um, and it, <laughs> I don't want to sound like a Marxist, <laughs> but there are these there are these technological changes uh, that have just shifted the emphases in our lives. Um, and I, I wonder if you also see this, this obsession or fixation on productivity as one that goes along with the increasing sort of algorithmic control um, in some very good ways, but then in some ways that almost put us on autopilot, just following the data, following the algorithm. Um, is that part of all of this too? I think it is. I think I mentioned Waze and Google Maps earlier. I want to get there quickly. I don't want to take the scenic route almost ever. I want to get there as quickly as possible. I want to miss as much traffic as possible. And I want to be as productive as possible. I want to get there quick and get the job done and move on and get more. I want to enjoy it more and more and more and more. And this, uh, I call, you know, this is an optimization uh, mindset, which is not the worst thing in the world, right? You want to be productive. It's not a bad thing to be productive. It's generally a good thing. But if we become too obsessed with it, I think we spend too much time hurrying to the next destination without thinking about whether that's where we want to go in the first place. And, you know, it's really weird to even imagine, well, you know, I'm not sure I'm going to go, I'm going to wander around for a little bit, see what catches my fancy. You know, that's what uh, Nassim Taleb describes himself as a flaneur, a French word, meaning somebody who strolls, who, who walks around, who sees what's happening, who watches, does some people, sees the people and the buildings and lets his thoughts wander. And that's not a very modern attitude, right? We want to get to work. In fact, I want to multitask while I'm walking. I'm listening to a podcast. I'm brushing my teeth. I'm, I'm shaving. I'm doing everything I can so I can get as much done as possible. And the whole life hack movement, this whole idea is like, hey, I got a trick for you. You don't have to put the time in. You don't have to do the work. It's a trick. It's great. Here, I got 10 tricks. 10 tricks to make yourself more productive, 10 apps you need on your iPhone, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10. And I think that's, you know, it's crazy, obviously. It's not a way to live. It's not the way we were uh, built to live. And we are, are, are wired in a very, I think, different way. And this drives most of us crazy. You know, I, I, I like to confess, I think I have about something over 50,000 emails open in my Gmail, uh, unanswered sitting in my Gmail account. A lot of people find that very alarming. They find that stressful. Like, oh my gosh, you're talking to one your, of them. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you you don't clear out your inbox every night before you go home. No, I don't. I kind of <laughs> like them hanging around, you know, just the kind of person I am. So I, I think there's a big uh, the role of technology in our lives. You know, we think about the driverless car. The driverless car is like. Here's one more headache. I'm taking off your list. It's fantastic if it worked. Hasn't worked yet fully. But the idea of it, the idea of it is no thought. Just, just set the set the destination. And, it'll, and the technology will take care of it for you. And before we do that with a lot of our life, and for a lot of our life, it's fantastic. But there's pieces of our life that we have to live on our own. We have to experience them, that we have to explore. 
And uh, that whole mindset's the wrong mindset. That's that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And these algorithms and, uh, you know, AI, everything is, has infiltrated so many different parts of our lives. We can no longer just comfortably divorce ourselves from the online and offline worlds. You know, you used to have to go to your desktop in a computer room and dial up. It's it's to the air we breathe now. Um, and I guess I wonder what your advice would be for people who um, are, are, I mean, I guess it's all of us, They're just sort of surrounded by and swamped by uh, all of this AI as to when you know in your personal life when to be i guess a little bit more skeptical or when to maybe pause and and not let the not push the autopilot button um or cruise control <laughs> uh, and and when are the right times you know how how can people determine whether technology is is taking them in a, in a good direction or whether they should pause and try to think through things as a, a human being on their own I keep the Jewish Sabbath. That means that for 25 hours a week, roughly, I do not touch my phone. I don't turn on any screens. I don't my computer. I don't get in a car. I don't shop. I don't spend money and so on. I spend that time uh, with my wife, eating, talking, singing, uh, going to synagogue, reading, and uh, very old-fashioned. And a lot of people have advocated for a technological Shabbat. A Sabbath away from technology. I think that's not a, a bad idea. I think it's a good idea whether you're a religious person or not. I think it's helpful. Uh, when when our kids were growing up, we had technology-free mealtime. You're not allowed to take your phone out um, during dinner. I think that's a really good rule. It may not be the right rule for you, but it's not a bad idea to have some set of constraints on your access to technology uh, if you feel that it is uh, controlling you rather than you controlling it. I'm amazed at you know, the many years we're now into the smartphone revolution. I still find it remarkably addictive. I find myself reaching for it all the time. Uh, if that's you as well as me, find a way to put it a little farther away uh, in certain settings or certain times or with certain people or certain social situations. So you can be present for another human being. Um, I like the cocoon of the phone. Uh, I like playing chess on it. I like scrolling mindlessly through Twitter. Uh, but the fact that it's mindless suggests I'm actually shortening my lifespan, <laughs> not because it's bad for my health, but because these moments of actual life are being replaced by this uh, robotic kind of scrolling thing. And it's wonderful. I love it. There are many things about it that are glorious, but I do think we should be aware of when it controls us. It, and it certainly can control me. And I try to be aware of it. You address historical examples in the book of oh, where some great minds veered off track by the, the, sticking to the, the rationality. Um, I, the ones I'm remembering right now are Ben Franklin and Charles Darwin. Can you share a little bit about those examples? Yeah. And, and, and they end up not so much uh, Ben Franklin. He, he gives some advice to uh, Joseph Priestley, the, the chemist, but Darwin uh, and others uh, who are, we would call rational, seem to make irrational choices often in the face of wild problems. Uh, Darwin's example is somewhat known, I think, by a lot of people found it entertaining. It's, um, it's kind of a dark kind of humor. He's trying to decide at 29 whether to have, whether to get married and have children. And um, 
his view of what married life is going to be like is appalling. Uh, it's inaccurate and condescending. Uh, it describes uh, coming uh, home to his wife as better than a dog anyway. He says at one point in his journal, mm. trying to tote up the pluses and minuses. And he makes the list. And it's clear that the minuses outweigh the pluses. And he gets married anyway. So what, how should we think about that? I mean, what does that tell us? He's not a rational man. Probably one of the three greatest scientists that ever lived. He's very thoughtful. In this area, he had a lot of anxiety. It was really hard for him. It, it leaps off the page. So what was going on there? And I think he recognized the reason he got married, even though his formal list was not uh, suggesting that it was the right thing to do. He understood that this so-called calculus of pluses and minuses was missing something, whether it was his desire to become a, a parent or a husband to share a life with another person, whether it's because tradition suggested it was probably a good idea, even though he couldn't seem to come up with the reasons why it was. Uh, he made the leap. He got married uh, shortly after this and married his cousin, by the way, who lived about uh, a few miles away. He did not make a large, exhaustive search of the best possible spouse. Uh, and on the surface, again, whoa, whoa, we could have done it better. Obviously, that's irrational. So I think part of the theme of the book is that things that look rational often are not, and sometimes things that look irrational often are rational. It's just that the full range of things that people need to take into account are not always so obvious. It reminds me, actually, it's the apparently the 10 year anniversary of Tinder and then the cut uh, in New York magazine is running anniversary pieces for Tinder. And the Darwin example just it, it struck me because I was reading one of these long essays just yesterday um, of, of how that also it's it's option paralysis for sure for younger people. Um, but it also is so you can organize people you can filter people in the same way that you would filter search results on a website that you're shopping on retail you can filter people on you know these these apps and it's another example of how the ai um is really like is trying to make these decisions for us and we're becoming really reliant on it um could you tell us a little bit about your own personal example? You moved to Israel, and that's part of the book. You talk about this in, in the book. Um, talk to us about that here. Share a little bit here about how you learned this from that decision. Well, first you have to tell me what Tinder is. <laughs> okay, so Tinder is... I'm kidding. No. Okay, I, I was going to say, you you have to know what Tinder is. <laughs> you know what Tinder is, but it's a fantastic, it's a fantastic example of productivity, right? Uh and first of all, the mindless part, again, I have not used it, but I have an idea of what it is. And swipe, 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 uh, got to do better, got to do better. What's the best one? And the idea of, of categorizing them and letting the app, the app or the underlying AI learn about your preference. I mean, it's, it's perfectly rational and normal, right? It seems like a good idea. Uh, I, it'd be a fascinating uh, piece to explore how satisfied people are with the with the tinder experience but uh, to come back to your question about my own personal um, decision to move to israel i was offered the chance to apply for this job of president of shalem college it's it's israel's only liberal arts college um it's devoted to the life well lived and it's full of philosophical issues that i've increasingly become interested in philosophical exploration that i've become interested in and um when I thought about what's the right thing to do, I mean, what's best for me, uh, it was a hard decision because uh, I don't speak Hebrew. I've never been an academic administrator. Uh, 
I've visited Israel many times, and I thought I knew a lot about what it would be like to live here. It turns out I was quite wrong. It's quite a bit more interesting and complicated, both good and bad. Uh, but at the time, I thought, you know, I've got a good life. I'm really happy. I had a wonderful job, which I, I still am affiliated with the Hoover Institution. But I was full-time at the Hoover Institution, living outside of Washington, D.C. I could work on whatever I wanted. I was well-treated. So why did I take this job? I mean, it's really kind of a crazy thing to do. And the answer, of course, is that in some sense, it was it was part of my identity. It was, I felt I was supposed to do this job. It was calling for me. I felt that if I did not take the job, in some sense, I would betray who I was and who I wanted to become. And I use that as an example of the of an alternative way to think about decisions. Like we typically think about decisions, again, if we're going to think about them rationally as, well, am I going to enjoy it? Is it going to, are the pluses going to be bigger than the negatives, the minuses? And I suggested in this decision and in many others, that's really not the way human beings make most decisions. And I'm not sure it's how we should make decisions because so much of what is palpable and tangible and comes to mind is only partially what the whole experience is like. And so we think we're making a rational decision when in fact we're leading, we're making a much more a decision that might be irrational and certainly is incomplete. And so the tool say of the cost benefit analysis or the tool of the app, which takes into account certain factors, but not all of them, if we're not careful can mislead us into thinking Oh, I know what the right thing to do is. And so in this particular case, um, I thought the right thing to do was to take the job. I've been here a year. It's been an amazing experience. Lots of ups and downs, a lot of challenges, but deeply rewarding. And that deeply rewarding thing is often hard to take account of in advance because you don't know what it's going to really feel like. Just like marriage, just like children, the, a lot of the uh, rewards are not front of are not front of mind and often don't come to mind at all. You know, Darwin's list really makes that clear when he lists the, the positives of, of marriage or of children. And he, of course, having never been married or had any children, he has no idea. <laughs> he thinks he does because he's been watching. He's seen a few people. He's seen children. Surely he knows what it's like, but he doesn't. And so similarly, you know, I wasn't sure how hard this was going to be versus how pleasant. So I knew that was not going to be the main decision. Now, it's not irrelevant. I point out in the book, if, if I've been given, I'm Jewish, if I've been given a chance to work at a Bulgarian college uh, for liberal arts, I wouldn't have done it. Uh, I have the Jewish state as part of my, my identity. It's, it's important to me and to make a contribution to it, I thought it would be very meaningful. So th that mattered a lot. But if it had been a horrible job where I'd work you know, in a salt mine from six in the morning till 10 at night, and I'd be eating bread and drinking water and no other kind of food, even if it had been an important calling, I probably would have said no. So I don't think, I don't want to suggest that these less tangible factors are the only thing that matters, but they're easy to ignore and forget. And so part of the goal of the book is to put them front and center for you, put them front of mind for you, the reader, as you're thinking about your own choices in life. 
And you know, just before we wrap up, I'm also curious about materialism. Um, and you know, the Darwin example is it shows that you know this is kind of an enduring problem for human beings, and in some ways that's very understandable. But um, also, I wonder if we, as we slip into this area where we're so much more comfortable following the directions that we can from data, which has its limits, and and even from artificial intelligence, whatever it is, um, that that nudges us towards material. Uh, because it's so much harder to measure the, I guess, the immaterial rewards in life. Well, it's a deep observation, and I think a deep problem. You know, this, this, the cliche in, in management and in business is um, whatever gets measured gets managed. And that's often true. Not always, but it's often true. It is a pitfall. It is something you want to watch out for in life. I don't think we're ready to think about how these challenges affect our daily life as opposed to our business life. In our business life, we know that if everybody has to hit their sales numbers to get a certain commission, we want to be careful not to do things that might be unethical or short-term oriented because we want to make our numbers and get the bonus. So we also understand that if I help you get your bonus, uh, that might not get measured and I'm not going to necessarily get any credit for that from my boss. And so that discourages me from doing that. Spend more time on my own possibilities, my own uh, leads and so on. So I think in business, we're, we're, we understand, this happens all the time, but we understand the danger. In our personal lives, I think it's less appreciated. We're new to this technology and, and the world of big data. And we think it has a certain magical, scientific appeal. Oh, it's a number with two decimal points after it. It must be meaningful. And of course, that's not the case. If the most important things get left out, it's not the case if the number is mainly an estimate or made up. And I think that's an enormous challenge as we bring these tools from technology in business and engineering and elsewhere into our personal lives. Uh, we're not so prepared for it. So it's, it's a big challenge. Russ Roberts, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, Emily. Thanks for having me. Of course, the book is called Wild Problems. It's available on August 9th. You can find more of Russ's work over at russroberts.info. You've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We'll be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. 